right. It's good to see you guys. I'm going to have a partner preaching here in just a minute. <laughs> All right. Well, Isaiah 41. That's a fairly big chapter. It's kind of a fun chapter. If, uh, if you don't believe that there's sarcasm in the Bible, you should avoid the latter section of all of Isaiah uh, because God and, and Isaiah get pretty snarky when it comes to idolatry, uh, both about idols and idolaters. And uh, some of that sarcasm really starts coming out in Isaiah chapter 41, and uh, it will get stronger. Uh, if you've read Elijah, you know, Elijah can be um, pretty vicious about the foolishness of idols. Uh, Paul wasn't sarcastic. He was just ultra direct. And uh, so, good stuff. Uh, Michael Stone uh, is, is home. He's out of the hospital today. And uh, he says he's feeling spunky and he's going to be teaching the adult Sunday school class Sunday. So, he's kind of a, an unstoppable force. So, looking forward to having him back. And yeah. So, he'll be picking it up in 1 Peter uh, and he'll be teaming up with. Um, two different guys, Pat and Rob. Rob is a former Calvary pastor, and Pat is a former Calvary Chapel missionary. Uh, Mexico for a short while, and then Belize for about 10 years. And I think Rob was a Calvary pastor for 20, almost 20 years. Yeah, it's pretty fun to see some of these, um, these guys join us, and they're going to be fun to see how God uh, brings their contribution. Um, probably, probably the last thing you heard. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. So some of you may not know uh, Teresa. She's, um, she's the blind gal that comes. Very happy, very outgoing. Uh, yeah, she has COVID. She's in the hospital. She's not doing well. Um, so we want to keep her lifted up. And um, yeah. Yeah. Anything else I'm missing? He does now. Okay. Well, why don't we pray and then I'll read the text to you. How's that? Well, Father, we love you. We thank you, Lord, for just so many precious people that you have put in our lives here, and um, Jack and Teresa, and we, we pray that you just grant mercy to Teresa now, and that you would restore her breathing, her strength, Lord, her health, and uh, you just bring her back to us, Lord, safely, and back to Jack, and pray that you'd watch after him as well, and that his conditions wouldn't worsen, but he would be strong. Uh, Lord, we're thankful for uh, Michael Stone. And I just pray that you continue to minister strength to him. And uh, thank you, Lord, for just his confidence in you and uh, his willingness to just embrace whatever you have for him. Uh, such an encouragement and appreciate him. And I pray, Lord, that you would be with us tonight as you put the pagan idols on trial and give your evaluation of them. And in doing that, encourage your people so teach us from the text, Lord, and encourage us in our God, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so Isaiah 41, let me read the text to you. Um, you'll notice three sections. Um, God speaking to pagans and their idols, and he'll, the middle section, he'll speak to his people to bring them encouragement regarding the future. And then uh, he'll once again turn back to the idols and um, tell them what he really thinks. So let's, let's read it. He says, Keep silence before me, O coastlands, and let the people renew their strength. Let them come near, then let them speak. Let us come near together for judgment. Who raised up one from the east? 
who in righteousness called him to his feet, who gave the nations before him and made him rule over kings, who gave them as the dust to his sword, as driven stubble to his bow, who pursued them and passed safely by the way that he had not gone with his feet, who has performed and done it, calling the generations from the beginning. I, the Lord, am the first, and with the last I am he. The coastlands saw it and feared. The ends of the earth were afraid. They drew near and came. Everyone helped his neighbor and said to his brother, Be of good courage. So the craftsman encouraged the goldsmith. He who smooths with the hammer inspired him who strikes the anvil, saying, It is ready for the soldering. Then he fastened it with pegs that it might not totter. But you, Israel, are my servant. Jacob, whom I have chosen, the descendants of Abraham, my friend. You whom I have taken from the ends of the earth and called from its farthest regions and said to you, you are my servant. I have chosen you and have not cast you away. Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. Yes, I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Behold, all those who were incensed against you shall be ashamed and disgraced. They shall be as nothing, and those who strive with you shall perish. You shall seek them and not find them. Those who contended with you, those who war against you shall be as nothing, as a non-existent thing. For I, the Lord your God, will hold your right hand, saying to you, Fear not, I will help you. Fear not, you worm Jacob, you men of Israel. I will help you, says the Lord, and your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel. Behold, I'll make you into a new threshing sledge with sharp teeth. You shall thresh the mountains and beat them small and make the hills like chaff. You shall winnow them. The wind shall carry them away and the whirlwind shall scatter them. You shall rejoice in the Lord and glory in the Holy One of Israel. The poor and needy seek water, but there is none. Their tongues fail for thirst. I, the Lord, will hear them. I, the God of Israel, will not forsake them. I will open rivers in desolate heights and fountains in the midst of the valleys. I will make the wilderness a pool of water and the dry land springs of water. I will plant in the wilderness the cedar and the acacia tree, the myrtle and the oil tree. I will set in the desert the cypress tree and the pine and the box tree together, that they may see and know and consider and understand together that the hand of the Lord has done this and the Holy One of Israel has created it. Present your case, says the Lord. Bring forth your strong reasons, says the King of Jacob. Let them bring forth and show us what will happen. Let them show the former things, what they were, that we may consider them and know the latter end of them, or declare to us things to come. Show the things that are to come hereafter, that we may know that you are gods. Yes, do good or evil, that we may be dismayed and see it together. Indeed, you are nothing, and your work is nothing. He who chooses you is an abomination. I have raised up one from the north, and he shall come. From the rising of the sun, he shall call on my name, and he shall come against princes as though mortar, as the potter treads clay, who has declared from the beginning that we may know, in former times that we may say he is righteous. Surely there is no one who shows. Surely there is no one who declares. Surely there is no one who hears your words. The first time I said to Zion, look, there they are, and I will give to Jerusalem one who brings good tidings. For I looked, and there was no man. I looked among them, but there was no counselor who, when I asked of them, could answer a word. Indeed, they are all worthless. Their works are nothing. Their molded images are wind and confusion. 
All right. I guess that is a pretty long chapter, isn't it? Isaiah can be a bit long-winded, but it's packed full of fun. So, unlike chapter 40, uh, chapter 40, Isaac, not, not Isaac, but Isaiah is speaking as prophet for the Lord. But in this chapter, it's, it's God who is actually speaking directly to his audience, which is Judea. But he's also, as you've seen in the text, he's addressing pagans and he's addressing their gods. <clears throat> the chapter comes across, of course, from the very beginning as if God is standing as judge and he's confronting the pagan nations while comforting uh, his people who have suffered under their hand. And as God comforts his people, he rebukes, he mocks, and he challenges the nations regarding their idolatry. Now remember, the context of all this flows out of chapter 38, where you remember God told Hezekiah that all that you have, your house, all of the people, everything is going to be taken captive and carried uh, to Babylon. And so then there's the... um, the prophecy, the warning about future judgment. Um, And so God, I think, anticipating that Israel would feel hopeless about God disciplining them. Uh, Then we get into chapter 4 or 40, where he comforts them. He says, yes, you deserve judgment and discipline. You're going into that. But I want to remind you that it has an expiration date. And then I will be calling you, you back. Now, this chapter also is meant to encourage uh, Judea, but here he's doing it by way of pointing out the weakness and the futility of idolatry and the nations who give themselves to it. And then, so what he's going to do is he's going to show the weakness of idols and those who follow them uh, up against the the exaltedness of God himself. So he kind of talks about idolaters and idolatry, and he says, see what I'm up against? I got this. Okay, I got this. So the God of Israel, who keeps covenant to all generations, he's demonstrating that he stands with Israel and he's going to see them through to his revealed and intended end. So as I said, the chapter comes in three sections, um, addressing idols, idolatry, encouraging his people, and then he comes back and uh, he gives the idolaters one last tongue lashing. So let's, let's look at it. So he begins, he says, Keep silence before me, O coastlands, and let the people renew their strength. Let them come near, let them speak. Let us come near together for judgment. So all the nations that have troubled Israel and then will trouble Israel in the future, uh, God is calling them basically to stand in trial, stand trial. The coastlands are... The word for coast can be translated either island or uh, those things along the coast. So it's probably talking about all of the islands, all of the, the pagans along the coastland. The peoples actually refers to the nations. So coastlands, peoples, we're talking about uh, pagan habitations. That's what it all is. God wants them to come to him, but then he also wants them to come strengthened. He wants them to come strengthened because he wants them to put forth their best defense. Why would God do that? He loves a fair fight. That's right. He doesn't want wimps to come to the fight because that won't really make him look good. Uh, He wants them to be strengthened, to be refreshed, and to come at him with all they got. And then he can come at them with as little as he pleases. 
and um, crush them. So immediately God, verse 2, comes out swinging. <clears throat> so this is interesting how he does this. He says, it's, he says, who raised up one from the east? And so the question is to everyone in the courtroom, as it were, and um, all the idols, if we you know, give them life, which is folly, um, they would all be thinking, we didn't. Who in righteousness called him to his feet? Who gave the nations before him and made him ruler over kings? Who gave them as the dust of his sword to his sword, as driven stubble to his bow? So immediately confronting them with questions. And what he's trying to do is he's trying to expose their ignorance, their weakness, and uh, essentially the fact that they're not deity. They're not deity. Now, this is important because the pagans viewed their gods as the keepers of the nation. Okay? They looked after the nation, protected the nation. So it was supposed to be in their foresight that they could prepare and protect the nation from danger, from invasion, and so forth. But if they are able to do all of that, then they should be able to answer this question. You get it? They should be able to answer this question. If they truly have foresight, if they truly are deities, there's nothing that they should not know, okay? But they don't know. Now, this person that uh, is said here to be risen up from the east, who's called in righteousness and all of that, they're going to be mentioned later in the chapter in the context of Israel's release from captivity in Babylon. Well, at this point in the history, they haven't even gone into captivity. So understand, God is... He's questioning them about things yet in the future. And it happens to be about 150 years. He goes, do you know what I'm going to be doing? Do you know what's actually going to be done 150 years from now? If you were gods, you would know. You would know. Okay. So real quick, I think it's important to address this. Since, we, since the, the whole context tells us that we're talking about future events, but here God is talking about um, them as if they're happening. Now, we find that a lot in prophecy, uh, whether it's the prophet speaking or it's God speaking. And when they do this, they speak in a, a variety of tenses. Uh, two common tenses that um, you know, Hebrew and Greek grammarians give this is because you know, God and his prophets are the only one able to do this. They call it the prophetic present, or we might say the future present, or even the prophetic perfect. Let me explain. Uh, real quick, here God speaks in what is considered the prophetic perfect, okay? He's talking about someone in the future uh, that he called in the past, but is currently ruling. And that makes it the perfect tense. The perfect tense is an action accomplished in the past, but has current or present results, okay? But because none of it has actually happened yet, the tense is called the prophetic perfect. You guys follow me? You nod your head and it's like, it's clear as mud. Yeah. So God, of course, sees all of time presently, right? Standing outside of time. But for those in the 7th century BC, as we said, these events are still 150 years in the distant future. And God speaks of it in the past tense. That's something he did in the past, and it's still ongoing, which makes it perfect tense. The questions continue. He says, who pursued them and passed safely by the way that he had not gone with his feet. 
So the question is, who is this person from the East, as the text says, who conquers and rules, rules over nations and kings? Actually, from the, their perspective, it's who will do this. From our perspective, it's who has done this. In verse 25, God says that he has raised up someone from the north who will call upon his name from the rising of the sun, which is actually the sun comes up in the east. Okay? So the question is, who is this person who comes from the east and the north? From the east and the north. Now, uh, the oldest interpreters said that this was Abraham. But there's problems with this being Abraham, uh, partly because it's in the past and he, the context says he's speaking of the future. But although Abraham conquered kings, as we saw in Genesis, he did not rule over them. And the route that he took to route those kings was places that he'd already been. And when he's talking here, this king had never been to some of these places that he conquered. Okay? Others have said that it refers to Israel, but Israel is never described as coming from the north or the east as conquerors. So that's kind of strange. Some have suggested that this is the Messiah, but the Messiah didn't come from the north or the east. He came out of the south. He came out of Bethlehem, right? And then following that, he came out of Egypt. Now, I agree with most commentators that God is talking about Cyrus. The context fits it very well. Uh, Cyrus is the one that released Israel from captivity. And then it was because of him that they began to go back to Jerusalem. Okay, So Cyrus, king of Persia, and uh, what will happen later on in the same uh, you know, broader section of Isaiah is uh, in chapter 44, he will name Cyrus by name 150 years before Cyrus is even born. Okay. God raised him up, uh, gave the nations to him to conquer, to rule over. And as the text says here, he will go in and he will just crush them. Okay, they're almost completely helpless against Cyrus. He conquered Babylon, conquered the Medes. He went as far uh, west as Sardis and Asia Minor, uh, which is Turkey. And uh, those were places he had never trotted before. Now, it's interesting uh, that God withholds Cyrus's name at this point in the prophecy, okay? He doesn't want to disclose his, disclose his name, I think, because if the pagans, if their idols are gods, as the pagans believe they are, they should be able to provide the name when they're questioned. If they, like the God of Israel, stands outside of time, they should be able to provide Cyrus's name. So God is, he's taunting them. He's mocking them, okay? If you are what they believe you are, you will have all of these answers. God is saying, I know something that you don't. And if I do know something you do not, then you are not a deity. You are nothing. Okay. And because they're not deities, they cannot prepare their nations for what is coming. He says, who has performed and done it? Calling the generations from the beginning. That is before there was any generations of anyone. He, he spoke about it. Okay. He performed it. He says, I, the Lord, am the first and with the last, I am he. So God is like, I'll tell you who has done all of this, who's called this one to conquer kings and rule over them. I'm the one that, that called generations before they were ever in existence. Okay? He says, I am the first and the last. But he, he changes, not changes, because he hasn't said that uh, clearly yet. But I love the language here. He says, with the last, I am he. Now, if you were a deity, I wouldn't have to tell you this. And those who are, if there are any, they already know this. We know that there are 
There are no other deities, okay? Of course, there are three divine persons who know all of this, but they consist of one eternal essence and are therefore one deity, one God and three persons. All right, it gets better. God's going to tell them how little they know and how they will not be prepared for what's coming. He says, the coastlands sought and feared, that's the coming of this one who was risen up. Uh, The ends of the earth were afraid. They drew near and came. Everyone helped his neighbor and said to his brother, be of good courage. So God's still speaking in the prophetic perfect tense. So when Cyrus begins his conquest, uh, what will happen is fear is going to take hold of the nations. And partially because he will move so quickly and so effectively in his conquest. Okay? Just desperation. People will try to form alliances, but he will move so quickly that nations will have troubles getting together. And because the pagans know of nothing else to do, they turn to their superstitions to encourage one another. So the craftsman, he says, encourage the goldsmith. He who smooths with the hammers and hammer inspired him who strikes the anvil, saying, it is ready for the soldering. Speaking of an idol, then he fastened it with pegs or nails that it might not totter. Now this is precious. It's filled with sarcasm, okay? The idol maker fastens the idol with pegs or nails so that it will not totter. That is, so it won't fall over. God is saying, your idol is so mighty to save, so powerful to protect that it can't hold itself up. It needs pegs. It needs to be nailed or fastened to a surface so that it doesn't fall over. You have to nail him down to keep him standing up. Your protector, your God, is helpless. Is helpless. Why would you depend on something like that? So, 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 so far, the, the verdict concerning the idols of the nations is this. They, they do not know the end from the beginning. So they cannot then prepare the nations for what's on the horizon. They can't even stand on their own. And so, as he said in chapter 40, they're uh, less than worthless. They're less than worthless. So God begins the trial by pointing out that he's not talking to his equal when he addresses the idols of the pagan nations. Now, that's to be encouraging to his people. They're less than nothing. They trust in weakness. But I'm the one that knows the end, the very end of all things from the very beginning. Okay, And it's just not foreknowledge. I can raise people up. I can cause them to rule over kings and nations. I can deliver you in any circumstance if I choose to do so. And of course, he has. So as I said at the beginning, God is saying to his people, do you see what I'm up against for your sake? I let them rest. I had them bring their best, and that's all they got. Okay, that's it. So he says, he, now he speaks to his people. He says, but you, Israel, listen to the language, are my servant, Jacob, whom I have chosen, the descendants of Abraham, my friend. I think this is the most important statement in the whole chapter. You, Israel, my servant, Jacob, the descendants of Abraham, whom I have chosen. The, the declaration is ethnically specific. Israel, Jacob, descendants of Abraham. Seems pretty specific. So clearly God is speaking to ethnic Israel. And the declaration is unconditional, especially in the context. Okay? So listen, God chose them as a nation uh, before the world was created. 
not because they were or would be righteous people. That could not be made more clear in the scriptures, okay? Uh, God even says this to them. Listen, he says, therefore understand that the Lord your God is not giving this good land to possess because of your righteousness. You are a stiff-necked people. Deuteronomy 9.6, Deuteronomy 9.3-4. He says another place, I didn't choose you because you were a great nation. He said, I had a lot of nations to choose from that were great, but you're least among the nations, and I chose you. And then, even though they rebelled against him time and time again, which is the very thing that got them disciplined in captivity, it does not annul God's choice. So speaking of Israel, Paul says in Romans eleven twenty nine, the gifts and the callings of God are irrevocable, irrevocable. So Israel did not get chosen because of their righteousness, and Israel cannot be removed from their position because of rebellion. God chose them unilaterally, unconditionally, and permanently. Whether Israel likes it or not, God chose them, and he will bring them around in the end. Okay, uh, Romans eleven twenty six. he says that. So God reinforces the unconditional nature of his election. Yes, you are going into captivity. You have done very wicked things. You've, you've committed various acts of idolatry. You've even burned your children in the fire to Molech. You've done all these things. You deserve judgment. You're going to get it. But it does not annul. It does not change my, we might say, election. Unless you're allergic to that term, we can just use chose. But they're used interchangeably in the scriptures. It's unconditional. It's unilateral. I have chosen you. Isn't that comforting? As you're going into judgment, it would feel like God has cast you away permanently. And here he's saying, don't think that thought. Okay, every good father disciplines his disobedient children. That's what this is. And when I'm done with the discipline, which has an expiration date, I'm bringing you back. And then when you misbehave again, guess what? I will discipline you again. Right, dads? Amen. Okay, thanks, BJ. Okay, he says, You whom I have taken from the ends of the earth and called from its farthest regions and said to you, again, you are my servant. I have chosen you and have not cast you away. Now, when we read in 2 Kings and 2 Chronicles about the invasion of Jerusalem, it's brutal. It is so ugly, the things that the Babylonians did. They were brutally conquered, viciously taken captive. They spent so many years away from their own land. I mean, think about that, 70 years. How could you not despair and think that God was finished with you? But God is saying, I'm telling you in advance, I've chosen you, I've chosen you. In spite of your sin, I will call you back. Your captivity will not mean what you think it means. Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. Yes, I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Now, real quick, I asked this question last week. What evidence do we have that God did that during the captivity? What's that? Well, during the captivity, there's a whole book of the Bible written about it. The book of Daniel. That's right. God was being faithful to his, his people that whole time. What's that? Huh? They, they did increase. Yeah. He even blessed them there. Kind of like in Egypt. Remember the worse they persecuted the Jews in Egypt? They had more babies. I don't know how that works. But. So even in captivity, even when I'm disciplining you, 
for grave wickedness. He says, I'm with you, I'm your God, I'll strengthen you, help you, uphold you. Now, I would even dare say that if you belong to Christ, who through faith in him, the Father has adopted you, giving you all legal rights as a biological son and daughter, that this exact same thing is true for you. As Jesus said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. I'll be with you even to the utter ends of the earth. So if you are a believer, if you're born again and you sin, there's something you should expect. You should expect the loving hand of God to turn you around and that might be a little painful, but he does it because he loves you. He wants to restore you. He wants, he wants reconciliation relationship. I think all these things are true. Nothing has changed in the nature of God or, or how he does covenant with people. And it says here, he says, I will do all of this with my righteous right hand. Don't you think it's interesting that this promise to them is related to his righteousness? The reason it's related to his righteousness is because it was a covenant. It was a covenant. And as we've said, the nature of the covenant was unilateral and unconditional. So in making the covenant himself, it wasn't an agreement with Israel. He chose them, called them, covenanted himself to them. There was no, if you do this, then I will do that. He just said, I promise I will do this. Genesis 12 and like 10 other times in Genesis. So what God has done is he's, he's bound the fulfillment of this to his character, everything. So it's all a matter of his righteousness. If he forsakes them, he actually forsakes his integrity. If he casts them off, he compromises his character, which he cannot do. He cannot do. So here's how God will keep his promise to them. He says, behold, all those who were incensed against you shall be ashamed and disgraced. They shall be as nothing. And those who strive with you shall perish. You shall seek them and not find them. Those who contended with you, those who war against you shall be as nothing as a non-existent thing. For I, the Lord your God, will hold your right hand saying to you, fear not, I will help you. Fear not, you worm Jacob. Now, I don't think he's trying to insult Jacob. He's just trying to talk about how small and insignificant Jacob is. He says, you men of Israel, I will help you, says the Lord, and your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel. Behold, I'll make you into a new threshing sledge with sharp teeth. You shall thresh the mountains and beat them small and make the hills like chaff. You shall winnow them. Now, you know this is all figurative language, right? Okay, because it would be absurd to winnow a mountain. The wind shall carry them away, and the whirlwind shall scatter them. You shall rejoice in the Lord and glory in the Holy One of Israel. The poor and needy seek water, but there is none. Their tongues fail for thirst. I, the Lord, will hear them. I, the God of Israel, will not forsake them. I will open rivers and desolate heights and fountains in the midst of the valleys. I will make the wilderness a pool of water and the dry land springs of water. I will plant in the wilderness the cedar and the acacia tree, the myrtle, and the oil tree, I will set in the desert the cypress tree and the pine and the box tree together, that they may see and know and consider and understand together that the hand of the Lord has done this and the Holy One of Israel has created it. So the nations that harassed Israel in captivity will be brought to nothing. The Babylonians are just annihilated and essentially just mingled and integrated with the other countries. Their identity just kind of vanishes, okay? Cyrus will crush all opposing nations. He will liberate Israel, and he will allow them to return to their nativity. And by way of eliminating her former enemies, 
Israel will have ease of passage back to the land of Israel. So the hills, as it were, will be made small so that their, their travels will be unobstructed, is the idea there, okay? That looks back to chapter 40 with the promise that the, the valleys will be raised up and the mountains will be brought low. It'll just be easier to travel. There'll be nothing resisting them. Okay, if, if Israel tried to travel from Babylon up the Fertile Crescent to Syria, basically, and then back down, all of those nations along there would consume them. But because of what Cyrus does, he basically, in, in a figurative sense, he raises the valleys, lowers the mountains. He just, every obstruction is removed and they safely return to the land of Israel. It's great. Not only will they have ease of passage, along the way, God will provide their needs, giving them water and giving them shade. So in, in many ways, it's similar to the way that Israel came out of Egypt. God provided them with water. He provided them with shade. He just made sure that they made it through the wilderness until they came to the border of Israel. All those things to ensure them that he's with them. He's helping them. He loves them. He's not cast them away. His providence will be with them every step. Now from here, God then turns to the idols once again, that is kind of in the courtroom, and he calls them to bring their defense. He says, present your case, (laughs) says the Lord. Bring forth your strong reasons, says the king of Jacob. Let them bring forth and show us what will happen. Let them show the former things, what they are, that we may consider them and know the latter end of them or declare to us things to come. So again, if the idols are indeed gods, let them reveal. That is what man cannot know because he's confined to the the time-space continuum. Let us know. If you're gods, let us know. Show all things to us that only a God would know. He says, show the things that are to come hereafter. How does he say it? That we may know that you are gods. Yes, do good or do evil that we may be dismayed and see it all together. He's saying, if you can, do something other than fall over. Okay, do something. (laughs) Prove your deity. He's just mocking them. Just do something. But they're just dumb, dumb idols. So he concludes with this. Indeed, you are just nothing, and your work is nothing, and he who chooses you is an abomination. It's just an, an obvious declaration about idols. Okay? They're nothing. They do nothing. They say nothing. They see nothing. They, they do nothing. Nothing. This is also a judgment against everyone who worships and trusts in an idol. He says they're an abomination, but he's saying that this is just completely nonsense. Why would you, you know, take a piece of gold or silver, put it in a cast, prop it up, and then call it God. In another place, you'll say, why do you take a chunk of wood and you carve away from it until you have an image, and you take all the the shavings and splinters and you burn it in the fire, and then you take the rest of it, you put it on a pedestal and you worship it. He says, it makes no sense. It doesn't speak to you. It doesn't reveal. It doesn't, it does nothing. It's nonsense. So, In responding to their worthlessness, God elevates his his own deity. He says, I have raised up one from the north, and he shall come. From the rising of the sun, he shall call on my name, and he shall come against princes as though mortar, as the potter treads clay. So the, the pagan idols, they were given a chance to declare something of the future, that something, just something that would demonstrate their deity, 
but they, they're nothing. They have no foreknowledge, they, nothing. They're not gods. So God does provide evidence of his own deity, and he's announcing something about the future. Not just knowledge, but predetermination. He's not, he's not saying, I'm passively knowing what will come in the future. I'm going to make it happen. I know both, okay? Or I do both, rather. So here it says uh, that he comes from, uh, the, see, he says he comes from the north, but he shall also uh, call upon the Lord from the, where the sun rises from. So that's the east. So how does he come from the east and how does he come from the north? Well, because of the ancient highways, uh, what they did was they avoided the most arid parts of the desert. So if you were traveling from Babylon in Iraq or Susa in Iran, okay, and la- later on those became the two uh, different palaces. So you'd have Babylon in the winter because it was cooler, and then toward the summer you would move to Susa, a higher altitude where it was cooler. When you're rich, kings like that, you can do that. They would basically snowbird. So if you're traveling from one of those two places, you would first journey you know, north and west up the Fertile Crescent, up the Euphrates River, okay? And then you would travel from the north to the south to Israel, okay? So Cyrus was a man of the east, but then he travels west to be directly north of Israel and all directions from the prophets are always, uh, they all center on Jerusalem. So everything is from that perspective. So I think it's very descriptive actually to say that Cyrus would come from the east and the north, crushing everything in his path. He also says that this individual who knows Cyrus will call upon his name. Now, real quick, this does not mean that Cyrus would be a follower of Yahweh, of the God of the Bible. Historically, we know that Cyrus was a religious pluralist, if not a syncretist, okay? He believed that all gods existed, and he was afraid to offend any of them. So what he would do is he would call upon all of them in some regard. He would offer an offering to them. He would pay some kind of respect to them, okay? And the reason he did that was because he did not want to offend or incur their wrath. And one of the gods that he dared not offend was the God of Israel. So what he did was he paid respect. He called upon him in that sense. And then what did he do? He said, Israel, go home. Just, just go home, okay? I don't want to offend your God. So Cyrus was extremely um, tolerant of other nations and their beliefs, okay? Not uh, tolerant as we think, you know, in the, the political correctness today, but just simply he was superstitious regarding all faiths, okay? You ever seen some people that wear like a, a cross and then they wear a rabbit's foot and then they wear... Um, I mean, the list goes on and on. I think there was a movie, like Mummy or something, I can't remember. But, you know, the, the mummy is coming after this guy, and out of his shirt, he's just pulling every religious symbol that's out there. Well, that was Cyrus. He's just doing everything he could to protect himself, okay? So he wasn't, he wasn't a convert to Judaism or anything like that. Now, what is interesting here is that, again, the God does not provide Cyrus's name. That's going to come later. He, he describes vaguely where he will originate, uh, what he will accomplish, but he doesn't provide the name. It seems to me that what he's doing by not naming him is he's just taunting the idols. He's taunting the pagan. If your gods are gods at all, tell us something else about this person. This is your chance. He said, bring your best defense. But God conceals this until Isaiah 44, verse 
28. He's going he's to let it linger and just give them a chance. Maybe you can conjure something up and throw a name out there, something. Okay? But they'd, they'd have nothing to prove themselves. A little more mocking. Who has declared from the beginning that we may know, and former times that we may say he is righteous? Surely there is no one who shows. Surely there is no one who declares. Surely there is no one who hears your word. So the answer is that no idol has ever declared from the beginning what will happen in the future. In fact, because idols don't actually speak, no one can actually hear them. But God speaks. The first time I said to Zion, look, there they are, and I will give to Jerusalem one who brings good tidings. So idols don't tell of things of the future, but the God of Israel informs his people in advance at the most unlikely time for them, in the most unlikely circumstances, just as God says, he will have an emperor bring good tidings to this small nation called the Hebrews, called the Jews. God says, for I looked, and there was no man, probably speaking of a prophet, a prophet of a pagan. I looked among them, but there was no counselor who, when I asked of them, could answer a word. Indeed, they're all worthless. Their works are nothing. Their molded images are wind and confusion. This is in the court proceeding. God giving them a chance. He looked to the pagan who are supposedly informed by their idols, but there's no prophet among them. There's no spokesman that can tell us what the idol is even saying. He says, the reason is, is because the idols are altogether ignorant and worthless and in vain their worshipers put their trust in them. But the God of the Bible has spoken and he continues to speak. He's informed us of things to come. Uh, He's revealed himself to us. Uh, He's shown us how he behaves. He's shown us how he saves and does. Uh, For example, he told us over 300 times that he would send his redeemer into the world. He told us who he would be. He told us his origins, that he would be of virgin born from Bethlehem, that he would be a fugitive, that he would call him out of Egypt, that he would be raised in a town of no significance. I mean, just on and on and on and on over 300 times. He's spoken and there's many things left to be fulfilled. It's crazy. So the chapter, of course, meant for Israel, but all of the truths contained in here when, when God makes covenant with his people and the nature of the covenant is the same, and I think our covenant with Christ is the same in many ways as the covenant with Israel. I, I personally believe, and I know that not everybody believes this, but as soon as you are regenerate, you, you place your faith in Christ and he saves you, that the covenant that you enter into at that point is unilateral, unconditional, it's permanent. And the same promises that applied to Israel are the same kind of promises that apply to us. So when we fall into the discipline of God because of waywardness and sin, that's discipline. And discipline is meant to correct, to restore fellowship. Amen? And as the author of Hebrews says, uh, if you're not um, experiencing discipline, then you're not a son or a daughter. Amen? Go ahead and stand up. If you have any questions about what I've talked about, um, I would love to chat with you. All right. Father, um, Lord, that you, the nature of your choosing is always the same. And Lord, you alone can work out your choosing in eternity and my believing in time and how all of those relationships come together. I know that you've chosen me. I know that you've placed the responsibility upon me to believe, but it doesn't change the reality of your choosing. 
your election. Lord, that brings amazing comfort, especially in light of the things that happen in life and my own brokenness, my own waywardness, that my heart is, is deceitful. But Lord, in your loving kindness, you, with a gracious and merciful hand, you redirect and you restore, and sometimes in spite of me. Lord, I'm thankful that your, your rod comforts me. And I just pray, Lord, that as your word says, that through that process, as you intended for Israel, that we would be partakers of your righteousness, that through it we become more like you. So Lord, be with us. Encourage our hearts, Lord. I don't know what everyone in this room is experiencing, but if they trust in you, Lord, the relationship is sound. They belong to you. And so, Lord, just encourage them, I pray. Bring them back around. Do in their life as you please. In Jesus' name, amen.